From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. I want to see what it looks like now. Oh, here it is. It's beautiful. I want it back. I want to drink wine from it and, and share it with our friends. Medics and chaplains and anyone from any multidisciplinary team can offer so much to a patient, but you can't prescribe hope. Ah. And the nominees are... Mark. Mark. Martin McDonald. Ah, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, Ryan Tuberty attempts to provoke an international incident when there's nothing left in the tank, how to combat burnout. And Ireland wins all the Oscars. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that's just honoured to be nominated. The musings on the news, or musings, if you will, on this morning's Ryan Tuberty show started with some thoughts from our host on holidays and how early people seem to be taking them these days. I was struck by one report in the Irish Daily Star this morning which said that summer holidays are increasingly being taken in spring. Now, why do you suppose that is? And I did notice this when we went to Centre Parks recently, how busy it was in school time and how the fact that all these children were, well, they were basically being taken out of school. And I say this not as a judgment or a criticism, just simply an observation. But it becomes clear why when I read this piece that families still want uh, a trip, whether it's to the beach in the sun abroad or more locally, wherever it might be in the country. And they're booking foreign holidays from March and April because it's just much cheaper. And that makes sense. And now I see the sense in it. So they want their children and themselves to have a lovely holiday somewhere uh, as I say, in the sun if they can afford it. And um, they were willing to take the payoff, take the kids out for a week, 10 days, two weeks, uh, because uh, if they were to book the same holiday in June, July and August, they could be thousands or if not hundreds of euro out of pocket. And that's the balance. They've, they've decided to, to, to throw the dice and take it that the travel industry claims. It's had an incredible start to the year with bookings surpassing pre-pandemic levels, which is good news for the travel. I mean, don't forget, we sat here for two, three years talking regularly about the travel business going through the floor and how depressing it was, how hard it was and how uh, it just unth- uh, thankless it was to be in that business. But it, it, so there is good news in there. I suppose the teachers might, might be a bit miffed, but it's different. It is a post-pandemic. Everything has changed and we have to evolve and move along with it. Indeed, and we do. At least taking children out of school to go on holiday doesn't provoke an international incident, unlike this next piece on the alleged theft of an Irish artefact by a British cultural institution. Now, will there be anything left in any museum in the the world uh, after everything? Everyone's asking for something back and everyone wants to give someone... And and then when you get into the national situation, the local museum wants the thing back from the National Museum and then the International Museum wants something back from the National Museum and then there's nothing left. Just going around looking at empty empty cases going, well, that used to be a thing, but we had to give it back. And that used to be a thing. The Museum of Lost Things is what we'll be looking at. Now, I say that, of course, in a, in a, in a flippant manner. But there are calls in the papers every day from France looking for things back from America and from London looking for things back from... Um, India, wherever it might be, and, and everyone's looking for things back. That's it. It's, it's a museum discussion, if you like. And the latest one uh, I have here is that the Labour TD, Sean Sherlock, 
wants is calling for the return of a cork artifact which is being held in the great museum of course the Day. it's the 16th century mount keefe chalice was bought in 1929 by officials at the Day for 400 pounds from an heiress living in cork and the history of how the object came to be in her family's ownership has been discovered as murky at best but it's likely the chalice was looted from a church by British forces during the up now I'm getting angry by the upheaval of the Cromwellian conquest of Ireland in the mid 17th century give us back art now I want the chalice back now I'm going over to London myself on the ferry to get it back and just walk in and take it I don't care about the alarms and I'm just I'll have that back thanks why you, you sacked and you pillaged and you wrecked everything so we just want our stuff back thanks it's like it's essentially if children are listening this morning you know when you kick your ball over the guard the neighbour doesn't own the ball anymore you just ring the bell and ask for the ball back. So I'm going to go to the V&A, ring the bell, and ask for the chalice back, and hand it to Sean Sherlock. I said, good man, Sean, you, you, you brought it to my attention, and, and as did Cork Bio, and therefore, we all, we're all winning. Anyway, back to the uh, serious business of this piece. Um, uh, Deputy Sherlock believes that officials should be opened, um, official talks, rather, should be opened with the United Kingdom. God, this, getting, this suddenly, suddenly became an international incident. I thought it was just a little newspaper article. He thinks we should, bilateral talks, and see if the Mount Keefe chalice should be returned. I want to see what it looks like now. Oh, here it is. It's beautiful. I want it back. I want to drink wine from it and, and share it with our friends. He said, I'd like to see a bilateral process between Ireland and the UK where artefacts and antiquities, which are of Irish origin, could be returned to us. There are probably thousands of artefacts of Irish origin which should be decolonised. See, he's getting in on this action, which is very interesting, that is happening all around the world. I told you about the museum in Paris, which I was reading about, which has hundreds, if not thousands, of skulls and human bones underneath there. Because so many museums, including our own beautiful museums, have stores of of multiple hundreds, if not thousands, of, of, of pieces that just don't have the space to show. But they have all these skulls under the museum in Paris. And they were taken in a kind of colonial sense from tribes and different parts of the world when that was all okay, 19th, 18th century. And now people are tracking them from their tribes and from their country, saying, could we have our skulls back, please? I mean, you think, fair enough. But it's, it's, a, it's a bumpy road and a thorny subject and a bureaucratic horror show, so I don't know where it's going to go. But I wonder, did the V&A get back and say, well, we'd love to help you, but um, unfortunately... Oh, no, here it is. A spokesperson for the V&A. Yeah, they've been on. They talked to Corkbio. And they say the following. Our archives don't include any information. I don't, I'm half doing a voice, but then... That suggests concerns that the Mount Keefe chalice might once have been stolen. Or that links it with a potential British military raid in County Cork. We would welcome the opportunity to explore any new information that comes to light about V&A collections. The chalice is available for loan to museums in Ireland, which could support for further study. Now, that's a very reasonable response, I would have thought. It's kind of saying, yeah, no, you can have a look at it, you can borrow the ball, but you have to throw it back over the, when you finish with it. That's really what this, just for younger listeners, that's what they're saying. But you can't have the ball. But but I bought the ball down down in the shop, down the road in Spittle. I know. So it's mine. Not really. You see, we then took it and we're bigger than you. So we totally own the ball. Therefore, you're not getting your ball back. But we have paper. I have a receipt from the shop. It says it's our ball. Yeah. No, you're not getting your ball back. Unless we have an international incident, at which point the rows continue. 
So I think the takeaway from that is that we can still expect an international incident, right? Now, sticking with museums, can we go and see that Brendan Fraser movie? You know, uh, what's it called? The Mummy? No, not anymore. We can't. So I'm not sure if you have seen the film The Mummy. The Mummy with Brendan Fraser and The Mummy 2. I've never seen The Mummy, but I believe they're good films. Good, kind of good fun. And cinema goers in London were settling in for a double bill of The Mummy the other day when who should arrive but Brendan Fraser. And he, he stood up and said to them all, hey, this is a film that was made in Britain and you should know that, even the second one too, so be proud and thanks for being here. We had no idea what kind of movie we were making when we shot this. Because um, he was promoting his film called The Whale. He's getting a lot of love. He's kind of back in the game now. It's a, it's a sweet story, actually. Um, and people were delighted. Now, I say this for a reason, because back to the museums. Museums in the UK have decided that it's not cool anymore to call mummies mummies. Now, you might ask, why is that? Well, let's investigate further. They are among the most popular exhibits in museums worldwide with the name so resonant that blockbuster films, aforementioned, have been built on it. But some museums in Britain are now using words other than mummy to describe their displays of ancient Egyptian human remains. Because that's what they're saying. That's So they, they're starting to adopt terms such as mummified person instead of mummy, uh, or to use the individual name to emphasise that they were once living people. So can we go and see the mummy? No, we're going to go and see Brian, the once <laughs> mummified. So either the name of the person, are we going to see the mummy? No, we're going to see Helen. Um, Helen is there for, covered in bandages and was once a living individual, but not anymore. Using different language to describe these human remains can also distance them from the depiction of mummies in popular culture. I'm already in Scooby-Doo. It's a mummy, the arm stretched out, bits of bandage floating around and they're wandering around making scary noises. But back to the point of the article. Using different language to describe these human remains can distance them from the depiction of mummies in popular culture, which has tended to undermine their humanity through uh, legends about the mummy's curse and by portraying them as supernatural monsters. So if you are talking about mummies now, you may have to rejig the language to mummified person or indeed Helen O'Brien, whatever their names were. Originally, Hardly going to be those two names, but I just gave him a little Western twist to make the story more accessible. So the mummy is cancelled then. He's nothing sacred. Let's take our outrage and flounce off into the sunset of today's newsings. I know that makes little to no sense, but you pay peanuts, etc, etc. After the arrest of Italy's most wanted man last week... Claire Byrne spoke to Anna Sergi, criminology and organised crime professor at the University of Essex and a native of Sicily, to get her perspective on what some are calling the end of the mafia. So mafia wars in Sicily have started before I was born, uh, which essentially means that when I was born and grew up, um, this was already normality in a way. So you grow up uh, thinking that the normality of uh, mafia violence is somewhat uh, inescapable, is something that is always going to be there because it obviously has been there since you were born. Um, so we were fighting different fights in a way. We had two regions of the south, uh, Sicily and Calabria, which 
is right on the peninsula, opposite to Sicily. Um, they were both experiencing heavy level of mafia violence. Uh, and actually, Cosa Nostra was very active in linking with the Calabrian mafia, the Ndrangheta, which eventually became my main research interest. Um, in, in various ways. So uh, they, there were killings on both sides of the, the strait that separates uh, Sicily from the mainland. Um, and the bombings in Palermo resonated um, everywhere, in a way. So when uh, Falcone, when Giovanni Falcone was killed in 1992, was the prime, you know, the, the main uh, symbol of the anti-mafia fight, um, it seemed like a point of no return. So it felt like, okay, this is it, they're winning. <laughs> they, you know, they're killing, they're blowing up a motorway to kill someone who they deem, um, you know, dangerous for them. So it felt like really this, this is getting too much. Mm -hmm. um, but then obviously, you know, history unfortunately tells us this wasn't the case and the, the state reacted and eventually you know everything felt uh, went back to some sort of normality where violence is not that widespread anymore so this arrest then and we, we spoke about it as i said last week but as the dust has settled anna on the arrest of yes. denaro what do you think it means for cosa nostra for the future of the organization for the future of the mafia uh, so the future of the organization is very much um, in shambles right now in the sense that obviously without Massina Denaro is the last boss remaining uh, and the last symbol of uh, Cosa Nostra they used to win. Um, the organization is clearly severely maimed. Uh, Matteo Messina Denaro is going to the hard regime, the hard prison regime. It's very unlikely he's going to talk. Um, but essentially, if he's talking, what is what's coming What's coming is essentially his relationship with uh, politicians and entrepreneurs and other professionals who has who have supported his, um, you know, his, his, his period as a fugitive. So it's not going to have an impact on the daily life of the organization, if not for a renewed interest into it. The, um, since we uh, spoke last week, um, we so the police has found three hideouts of Matteo Messina Denaro. In these hideouts, basically, there were his things, his, you know, his life. We uncovered how he used to live in the past few uh, few years. And it's very clear that he was a very self-absorbed man. So it doesn't seem to be that interested in Cosa Nostra as much as he's interested in keeping his role as a leader in Cosa Nostra, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So he's not, he's not having an executive function. So um, it, I think that goes around goes to say that Cosa Nostra really is a bit on a in of a moment everyone on its own everyone for himself kind of thing and probably that's what we're going to see he's not an old man he's in his 60s isn't he but he's very unwell yes. Yes. So we heard yesterday from uh, the medical, some medical doctors who had uh, his uh, documents that he has no more than three years uh, left. Obviously, this, this, you know, this is not necessarily true, but we give it gives us an idea of how advanced uh, his uh, illness is. He has cancer and is clearly very sick. So this is going to change his prison sentence as well. I mentioned at the beginning that there was widespread relief at his arrest. There will be also some people who are very nervous and others who will have lost their income because of this arrest. 
Yes, <laughs> that's another issue that obviously many people uh, were saying, are you sure this is a good idea to arrest him? Because obviously many people are going, are probably going down for it. And obviously many people have been involved into it. And now it, this is scary. Um, one thing that happened at the very, at the same time when he was arrested is the state, the ministry, Minister of Justice actually announced some new regulations to make the anti-mafia fight less invasive in a way. So it's kind of like a short circuit of Italians this way when you have a major win on the one end and then on the other end, the politics says, you know what, now that we arrested the last big one, it's time to rethink our strategy and put less effort in the anti-mafia fight because now we have arrested him. So it's it's kind of, you know, um, things are moving around this in Italy quite quickly uh, after this arrest. So it's not just about what happened to Cosa Nostra now, but what happens to the anti-mafia fight because arresting Matteo Messina Denaro was a extremely, extremely expensive. 30 years of a non-stop investigation. You can imagine how expensive this is in terms of human resources, but, you know, good old money. So many people are actually questioning, can we afford this? Can we afford to put all these resources into one man, essentially? So is that why the government then, Anna, has decided to sit back a little bit when it comes to the mafia because of the expense or is it to just settle the nerves (laughs) of other people here? It's probably both. Uh, I think with this government, we are used to see um, a bit of denial uh, when it comes to crimes of the powerful, which intertwine with the mafia crime in Italy. That's the normality, unfortunately. The, so, and the Italian mafia has long benefited. People will know from support at the very highest levels of, of the yes. state, complicity, complicity amongst the police, the judiciary, business, Catholic Church even. Is that yes. still the case? Is that still happening? It is still the case, but it, I think it's more contextualized now. Um, so it, it is the case in certain areas, definitely, still between Sicily, Calabria, or even in the north of Italy, in certain smaller realities probably where it's easier to not necessarily to approve of mafia behavior but to know each other more and to essentially be you know in touch with each other more so the level of uh, meeting is higher. That's Anna Sergi criminology and organized crime professor at the University of Essex talking this morning to Claire Byrne about the decline of the mafia in Italy. Going to air, as it did while the Oscar nominations were being announced, Liveline managed to get some real as-it's-happening excitement on the airways, not least from presenter Joe Duffy himself. Just two categories remain. The first is achievement in directing, Ah. and the nominees are... Martin. Martin. Martin McDonough. Ah, I knew it! I knew it! Ah, the Daniel rest Kwan of my team. and Daniel Shiner. It's my own. The rest of my own. Can we not have? We may have the Oscars at the convention center Steven in Dublin. Steven Spielberg, the favorite. Save a lot of people traveling. Todd Field, Tar. And Ruben Usland, Triangle of Sadness. And now the final category. Yes. Here are the ten nominees for Best Motion Picture of the Year. Yeah, well, let's just give us a banshee. All Quiet on the Western Front. Yeah. Malta Grunert, producer. Excellent, that was from second. Avatar, The Way right. of Water. Over James the top, Cameron big budget. James Cameron and John Landau, producers. I'll come towards. The Banshees of Inna Sharon. That's a winner. Graham next, Brent, next. Peter we can all go home now. McDonough. 
producers. That's eight. Elvis, Baz Luhrmann, eight Oscar Martin, nominations Gail for... Berman, Patrick McCormick, and um, Skylar Weiss producers. Eight Oscar nominations for Banshee. We have um, everything, everywhere, all at once. Daniel Kwan, Daniel Scheinert, and Jonathan okay. Wong producers. The Fablemans, okay. Christy McCosco, Krieger, Steven Spielberg, Steven and Tony Spielberg. Kushner producers. Tar, Tar Todd Lanches. Field, Alexander Milshan, yeah. and Scott Lambert producers. Top Gun Maverick, Tom, Tom Cruise, Christopher McQuarrie, David Ellison, and Jerry Bruckheimer producers. Yes. Triangle of Sadness, Eric Hemendorf and Philippe Gobert producers. Okay. And Women Talking, <laughs> Didi Gardner, Jeremy Kleiner, and Francis McDormand producers. That's it. Thanks. This Go home. This year's Oscars will not be taking place in L.A. They'll be taking place in Dublin because so many people from Ireland are going to have to travel to L.A. It will save, uh, will save, probably save uh, the um, the uh, ozone there if we um, if we have it in Dublin. Um, um, so that's Banshee. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, seven or eight nominations, and then uh, Colleen Kuhn got well, was only up for one nomination as such. So congratulations to them. And then another another movie which I heard him talking about on um, BBC Radio Four last night actually was an Irish a, a movie made in rural Northern Ireland called An Irish Goodbye, and this. Uh, it's a short, it's a short, and it features uh, an incredible actor called, um, come back to me here, Joe, uh, I think his name is James Martin, James Martin, and the uh, two directors were on um, on BBC last night talking about it, and they were raving about um, the, the Tom Berkeley and Ross White RDM, the, the, the two uh, directors, the two directors, not one, but two directors, and um, the... Yeah, James Martin is the actor in it. And James, you probably have seen James before because he, he, he's well known now as, as an actor and he acts as his life. He acts as is his daily wonderful life. He, he has Down syndrome. He's born with Down syndrome and that's the character he plays in this movie and apparently he's absolutely incredible. So that's a whole slew. Who, Alan Lennon, 90 days ago, you came on Liveline and you said Colin Farrell would get nominated for Best Actor. You were right. Yeah, and I also mentioned the donkey and the dog at the same ah, time. Ah, Jenny didn't get her look in. And what was the dog's name? Charlie, isn't it? I can't remember, but on every American talk show that I've seen on YouTube, yeah. with Colin Farrell and, what you call him, Leonard Leeson, the American uh, producers always ask about the donkey and the dog. How is Jenny? How is the dog? How is Jenny? <laughs> and I've seen them all on YouTube, and every guy that's that's presenting the show asks about the donkey okay. and, and the dog. And on the day you were on, as I say, 90 days ago, um, we had the, the the owner of Jenny's, Jenny's mammy, so to speak, came on. Yeah. And she told us that Jenny retired immediately. She was a diva. She retired immediately after that movie and is now uh, out to, uh, uh, I won't say groom, uh, <laughs> out to uh, pasture in County Wicklow. County Wicklow. So well done, Alan. You, 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 were, you never lost faith in Colin. You said it 90 days ago. Um, yeah, and I, I also add now, I just want to say one thing as okay, well. Okay, I do, yeah, I do, yeah, I do, yeah. A lot of American people now are going to wonder what is a banshee. 
Yeah. And to go on the delve into a banshee and you'll probably see some sort of American horror movie about this woman up in the tree throwing a comb at you and you'll die. Yeah, but you, there's no banshees in Ireland anymore. No, but it's a mythical. My grandfather, Sylvester okay. Hogan, used to say to us when we were young, look out the window on a windy day and if you don't go to sleep quick, the banshee will come and get you. And by God, you went to sleep very quick. So you think Colin, who's your, been your favourite from way back in October... And now you've, you're halfway there. Well, you're a good way there because the, the banshee is, is, is hoovering up the place. Um, do you think Colin's going to get best actor? Ah, uh, he'll definitely get that. That's, just, that's no problem. He will definitely get that. The Americans love him anyway. Yeah. Why do the Irish it, love the Oscars so much? Why do we go it, mad? Why do we go crazy? I think it's something to do with our accents. Yeah, OK, but we love the Oscars as well. OK, uh, uh, Alan, given that you predicted 90 days ago the success for Colin Farrell today, would you give me the lotto numbers for tomorrow night while I have you there, please? It's 7635211. OK, OK, 7635211. OK. Lovely, lovely. Well done, Cheers. Alan. That's caller Alan there giving out not only his Oscar predictions, but also tomorrow's winning lotto numbers on this afternoon's Live Nine. Public service broadcasting at its finest. Juliana Crowley is a lay chaplain at Cork University Hospital and Cork University Maternity Hospital. She joined Ryan Tuberty this morning and they spoke about some of the people who've availed of her services. Well, let's talk about some of the people you've helped uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm keen to point out that you, you very kindly spoke to the relatives of the people we're going to mm. talk about to ask their permission uh, to share their stories this morning. We are deeply grateful to them for that because not an easy thing to do so thank you to them in advance of this uh, this uh, turn in, in the road if you like talk to me about uh, Dennis Caniff for example yeah, Dennis Caniff um, he was oh, he's a beautiful man um, I met Dennis uh, during I suppose the height of Covid in 2021 um, and 2020 rather and um he, his wife actually rang into the hospital chaplaincy at the time and she said, you know, um, my, at the time they, they weren't married, but they, she said, my, my boyfriend Dennis is, um, is in hospital and he was only in his mid-30s and she said, you know, he's just been diagnosed with a brain tumour um, on Friday and this was the following Monday. And um, she said, would you mind uh, going visiting him? Because he was also a little bit distressed. Um, he'd misplaced his, his rosary beads and she said, look, you know, would you mind calling down to him because just to reassure him and just to check in with him. So I went down and um, and I visited Dennis and um, and and it went from there. He shared with me, you know, that he was going for surgery the next day. He had been diagnosed with a very rare form of brain cancer, and um, and you know he was he was frightened. Um, there was so much uncertainty ahead of him, um, and the road was was scary. And simply, and I just wish and we spoke, and and he shared what was on his mind and what was in his heart. And then after that, um, he went for his surgery, and I linked in with Kate, um, and um, I just checked in to see how she was doing okay because for families too they're, they're so distressed when the loved one is unwell and um, and I kept that link up with her um, and throughout all his treatment in hospital and outside of hospital I kept the contact with Kate and Dennis and um, when I first visited Dennis he had a lovely picture on the side of his bed um, with a picture of his family um, his brothers and his sisters and, and there's a picture of Kate and, um, and I suppose from those moments you get to know about a patient's life outside of their illness which is very very important too because illness can dominate someone's work 
world. Um, but in actual fact, they have so much more in their lives as well. And um, so Dennis, um, one of Dennis's goals, Kate was often say to me was you know to get to their wedding day, mm. and um, they got married in September 2021. And I suppose at that point, Dennis was very very unwell. And um, and throughout all his journey, Dennis was very resilient. Like you go into Dennis, and you might expect like to go into someone that almost was almost depressed about where they were at. But Dennis was hugely resilient and very matter of fact. Like you know, you'd be saying, "We're going to get on with this now," and there's going to be no getting upset and no tears. And you know, we have to beat this best we can. Mm. And um, Kate often would say, you know, that you know, medics and chaplains and anyone from any multidisciplinary team can offer so much to a patient but you can't prescribe hope. And it's so important when you're with patients and families that you be hopeful with them because that's all that they have to hang on to at times. And Dennis's fate was a huge aspect of his life as well. He got huge comfort from it. And unfortunately, um, seven weeks after they got married, Dennis passed away at the end um, of October, the 29th of October, 2021. And, um, you know, when I spoke to Kate about coming mm-hmm. on to talk to you, Ryan, I mentioned about, you know, that, you know, when I think about the lives and the people that I've met and dealt with over the few years, uh, that Dennis came to my mind. And um, and she often said that Dennis always said that if, if he was to get better, he would share his story with you oh, um, no. on your show. And she just felt that this was another way around sharing his story because he was hugely, hugely important. And um, he was very important to us in chaplaincy and, and his needs too for to be anointed by the priest that used to visit him as well. And um, just very, very special. And, and these people have a huge impact on people's lives around them mm. as well. And, and to his community too as well in Bandon. Um, they're very, very special people. You know, it's that's so poignant. I didn't, you know, at the end of your story that he would have been sitting in front of me here telling it himself if, mm. if he had made it through. But I'm so happy in some strange way that he did get to tell his story through through you and through Kate and her kindness to, for you to share the story. So thank you for that. And uh, condolences to Dennis's family and to Kate and, and everyone around him. And as you say, in, in, mm. in Bandon, thank you for that. And it illustrates perfectly the support you offer, the crutch, if you like, at, a, at such a time. And um, you spoke to the, uh, the, the Nocton family and uh, Emma's family about her story. Uh, Emma, as you say, uh, she mm-hmm. was she was very young, wasn't she? She was very young. Emma was only 26 years of age. Um, I met Emma actually it was around this time last year, that beginning of January last year. Um, Emma was transferred from Galway to the CUMH here in Cork. Um, and Emma had a very rare form of liver cancer that she was diagnosed at at 16 and she went undergone huge treatment for it in America and, and here in Ireland and um, when Emma came to CUMH she came there because she was pregnant with twins um, at the time and um, and I suppose Emma very early on her her time in CUMH she requested that the chaplain come to see her and, and um, her mother Pauline um, was with her um, throughout all of her time in CUMH as her family were and um, she she gave birth to her beautiful little baby boys, uh, Danny and Kai, um, on the 25th of January. So she was only a couple of weeks in hospital and they were born at 25 weeks and, and six days. And, and they were tiny. Danny was only one pound uh, seven ounces and Kai was, was one pound nine ounces. And, um, and, uh, and it was a hugely frightening time for Emma because Emma was battling with cancer and, and she was, you know, trying to keep going for her little, two little baby boys that she really wanted to give life to as well. And um, they stayed with us and there was, a, you know, I suppose with the neonatal staff too and the maternity um, this was a hugely challenging experience as well for them because you had a very young girl very young mother um, and two very young little small little baby boys who, who too were up against it as well they were so small and um, 
And I suppose we are, I was invited in as a chat, my fellow colleague champions too were invited into their lives to, to support them during that very difficult time because there's so much uncertainty. And um, and Emma, you know, in our conversations we shared with each other, you know, she'd often talk about her hopes and her dreams um, for Danny and for Kai and for herself. And um, and um, I suppose as part of that journey too, you know, that when you're with a patient, that it's so important to stay in that place of hope with them as well because they need you to be, um, despite, you know, what you might be seeing around you. And and um, so Emma was a beautiful girl and um, she went home to Galway with her two little baby boys um, at the end of February um, last year. Um, but unfortunately, Emma passed away on the 27th of February um, at home in Galway in her home in Ornmore um, with her family and friends gathered around her. Um, and little baby Danny and little baby Kai were in the neonatal unit in Galway then and um, little baby Danny passed away um, one month after that, only two months old, Danny passed away Good in, in Galway. Um, and um, and I suppose for Emma's family, Pauline and, and Tommy and, and her siblings, uh, Jack, Tommy, Katie and, and little Noah. And um, they were, they, for them too, to be there for them as well was hugely important as it was for the staff on both four south and the neonatal unit because um, these are life events that, that don't make sense to us, you know. Um, you know, here we're a young person in such difficulty. And, um, and But I suppose little baby Kai um, did well and, and Kai is going to be one year old, one year old tomorrow. Oh, that's... Um, so it's a huge... That's a little, you know, tiny little golden moment in an otherwise desperate story. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, but again, another person who, um, you know, deserves a chaplaincy, I suppose, meant a lot to them. Um, and they often would have said to me, you know, if, if chaplaincy wasn't there, we don't know what would have replaced that support, you know. Um, and it's just being there with them and journeying with them and, and supporting them in the, in the best way, you know, how and meeting them in mm. where they are at in that moment. That's Cork University Hospital and Cork University Maternity Hospital chaplain Juliana Crowley talking to Ryan Tuberty this morning. The resignation of New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern last week highlighted once again the hazards of burnout. On this morning's Today with Claire Byrne, Siobhan Murray, psychotherapist and author of The Burnout Solution, joined Claire to discuss what happens when there's nothing left in the tank. Can you talk to me about the classic signs of burnout, the ones that are common across the board? So, and I think this is one of the things that's really important in this, Claire, is the things that I'm going to say, we'll all go, oh yeah, no, I felt like that and I felt like that. This is when it's continual, when there's no let up from it. So it's that that lack of motivation. Um, we might be getting really irritable with people, our colleagues, family. Um, we're not feeling our in control uh, we might be starting to depend on alcohol, that, that glass of wine, two glasses of wine every night as a perceived distressor, um, issues with sleeping, falling asleep or being able to fall asleep, but waking up two, three in the morning, the mind is just going because the cortisol, your stress levels are so high. Um, feeling disengaged, not wanting to be out socially with people. But the biggest one that I'm now seeing is the inability to rest. It's not being able to sit down. So people are sitting down, but their minds are still going. They're not. That's not restorative rest. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when it starts to, to really kick in, when we're looking at chronic uh, burnout, we're now looking at people being signed off work. So then you're in the vicious uh, circle of mm-hmm. not being able to rest, being increasingly exhausted and the impact that that has professionally personally, socially, and it just gets worse. Yeah, it's just a vicious. It, it, I mean, I think what I've realised in the last few years is how toxic 
burnout is to the individual, forgetting about, you know, the knock on effect to family and, and work, but to the individual, Un, unrecognized by the person it will eat away at them. Mm-hmm. And it's good, isn't it, that people are talking about this now, like Lynn last week and, and many others as well. But is it becoming more common and is it a symptom of how we are expected to live now? Well, you know, 10, 20 years ago, we weren't working with companies. We weren't virtual working with companies in different countries. We weren't having meetings at 11 p.m. Um, or being up at 5 a.m. To, to catch somebody in Australia. We're, we're working in a way that we've never worked before. Um, and that, in some levels, is great. That's, that's not it. But we're also not putting those boundaries, the personal boundaries in place in order to manage. So everything revolves around work. There is, and I mean, personally, I, I don't like the term work-life balance. I think that's too black and white. Um, I think it's work-life integration. But it's just become about work and guilt if we're not working. Um, it's that constant pushing and pushing. Mm-hmm. Thought what was really impressive about Lynn Ruan was recognising that there was a problem and then doing something about it because that's really difficult when you're in the maelstrom of, of burnout and you're feeling all of those symptoms that we spoke about to be able to say, right, what do I need to change to make this, to fix this? Yeah, and I think what's really interesting is, you know, you don't get burnt out. You're fine on a Monday and you're burnt out on a Tuesday. So it happens very slowly. So we adapt. We nearly adapt to that and that becomes our new normal. But also tied up into that, being honest and saying, I'm not feeling great. There's a huge fear of judgment by your peers, by your colleagues of not being able to cope. You know, on the outside, it might be I have a job, I have a house, I have a family. I have all these great things going for me, but I'm I'm completely burnt out. But not having the confidence to admit it which is the first step. Mm-hmm. And you speak from experience. You're an expert now in this and you talk to people all of the time in corporations and individually, but only because you know exactly what it's like because you went through it yourself. Yeah, and very sim- similar to um, to Lynn. It happened to me when I was much younger in my 20s, but I didn't know what it was. Now, I didn't end up in hospital, but it was that completely withdrawing into myself. Um, In my 30s, I remember when it happened a second time, I lived very close to where I worked. I used to drive home at lunchtime and lie on the kitchen floor, just going, "Okay, I have 45 minutes and I'll do this and then I'll get back into the office. And it it was just this constant, because I wasn't changing anything because I didn't realise it. I didn't realise I had to change the way I was living in the world and manage my health, my physical, emotional and mental health in order to be able to to be to have joy, mm-hmm. you know, to to be content. So how long were you lying on the floor at lunchtime before you realised <laughs> I have <laughs> to change this? <laughs> A long time. It was I think it it really took until I left working in the corporate world. And it it was at that point that I went and studied um, to be a, a psychotherapist. And through that process, you have to do 50 hours minimum of your own personal therapy. And I had dipped in and out of therapy. Like I put all the little plasters on over the years. Um, but this was the first time that I actually started to understand. And for me, the biggest catalyst was 15 years ago when I gave up drinking. And... That allowed me the space to go, OK, how do I mind myself so I can still strive and still do all the things I want to do? And I probably work longer hours and more now than I did when I used to get burnt out. Really? But I now know what I have to do each and every day in order to manage my stress levels, 
to look after my health, um, uh, my mental and physical health. So t- tell me, how do you do it? <laughs> so I, it's micro things. It's not the yoga classes. It's not the getting in the car, driving somewhere, doing a class, coming back. I'm a single mum. I don't have that luxury. So I get out at least three or four times a day. I go outside my front door and I do a five, ten minute walk. Now, if I get to do a big walk, as I call it, for an hour, great. But I, if I put everything into that big walk and I don't go outside the door, that big walk doesn't happen. Then there's a day that I haven't gone for a walk. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm very cognizant of the micro things. I would practice um, box breathing, you know, count in for four, hold for four, out for four. It doesn't cost me anything. I do that when I put the kettle on. So I do it in the car. I bring in small little things that will allow me to reduce my stress levels, to bring my heart rate down. And anybody can do these. Psychotherapist and author of The Burnout Solution, Siobhan Murray, talking to Claire Byrne this morning about how to avoid burnout. The director of Uncalling Kuhn, Colin Barred, told Ray Darcy last week that he and the film's cast and crew would be gathering in the Stella Cinema in Rathmines today to watch the Oscar nominations announcement live on the big screen. Ray picked up the story this afternoon. High risk, we thought at the time, but it's paid off. And we've sent Sinead and Eulicon down there and Sinead's on the line now. Good afternoon, Sinead! Good afternoon, Ray. Well, laud our sale, history was made today when Colleen Kuhn became the first movie to be nominated for an Oscar. I think it was the icing on the cake. Many will agree after so many wonderful nominations and awards that were given to the movie over the past few months. And I'm here in the Stella Cinema at the moment and it is quiet. We're talking about Colleen Kuhn on Pigdurlan Kuhn and so because it is quite quiet, but it wasn't at about quarter to to Irish time, I reckon. I think you might have a clip of uh, the crowd cheering. All quiet to the Western Front, children. Argentina, 1985, Argentina. Close, Belgium. Eo, Poland. And the quiet girl. And it went on. And on. And on. (laughs) And on. And why not? I tell you, well deserved. So what was the story with the press and you and everybody else down there today? Well, Nirev Kad Egenbress, media were not allowed in for the screening of the nominations earlier today. So everyone was outside the door and I'm sure that we could all hear those cheers and that we knew that the Colleen Kuhn had been nominated. But they strung it out. It was the fifth film to be uh, listed when the nominations were being given from uh, the theatre in uh, Beverly Hills. So they did make us wait for it. But I think the second that it was named as the fifth film, everyone was so happy yeah. and the press were allowed in. And it was just so nice to see the cast and crew and their families all gather around. Everyone was so happy, so joyful. Colin Barred on Stuart Hoare gave a little speech and he's by my side here. You'll hear from him in a few minutes time. But I was talking to some of the cast and crew and they were telling me that this was pretty much the rap party that they had because when Uncalleen Kuhn was filmed, it was, of course, during the <clears throat> you-know-what, mm-hmm. we won't mention it, and uh, not everyone was allowed to... Party, party. So this was the party. And uh, it is quite quiet here in 
the Stella at the moment. And I think that's because everyone is probably upstairs having a drink or two celebrating and that they uh, richly deserve that as well. Yeah. Ah, some of the crew, um, some of the actors and Colm, of course, have decided to come back in to have a little chat to you. And Colm is by my side here, so I might pass you over to the man of the moment, Colm Boread. Uh, thank you very much, Sinead Neulicon there down the Stella in Rathmines. Uh, Colm Boread, Cohorticus. Caribbean longest, right? <laughs> Duck Cratcha, unbelievable, incredible stuff. I mean, it, you mentioned like all the big sporting occasions. Like this is, I lived through Italia 90. I remember I was like eight at the time and this was the closest experience to like that David O'Leary final penalty <laughs> kick, you know, waiting, just waiting to see. Because um, they really, we were the last one. They, yes. was, they were called out alphabetically. So oh. we kind of had a feeling if we were going to be called out, we'd probably be last. So it was really tense, like coming towards the end there. It was crazy. You needed George Hamilton saying, a nation holds its breath. <laughs> because it's it's funny because after nomination number four I heard somebody in the audience down the cell go oh no so yeah, that, that cheer I, was yeah, relief and celebratory yeah I think it's because the, the fourth one was EO which was the Polish film and you know people weren't sure whether that was going to make it or not so you know we've been we're obviously experts now in all these different films yeah. and we're, we're, what was expected to happen with them but um yeah, so I think people thought when that one was in, it was like, oh no, is that after bumping us out or what's happening? And but yeah, it just obviously went went our way at the end. So things went things went a bit crazy in here. I know from talking to you, you're a calm enough individual, but can you give us an idea of what was going through your head? You know, from the time you got up this morning till the announcement just after half one today. Uh, I mean. It's more what was going on in my heart. I think it was like my heart rate has just been definitely a bit higher <laughs> all day long. Um, I mean, we kind of, you know, we were sort of like, you know, it's obviously incredibly difficult to be to be nominated. So you have that. But we mm. we were also kind of hopeful. Like we kind of felt like all the screenings that we had had in LA and the, the feedback we'd gotten from Academy members, it felt like there was just a kind of momentum behind the film. Um, and then, you know, when we saw like An Irish Goodbye, the short film um, got nominated and we were seeing all these wonderful nominations for Banshees, um, we kind of felt like, OK, maybe this is maybe this is like a thing. Maybe this is just <laughs> yeah. like an Irish wave that's going to happen <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah. And yeah, it happened. And then obviously after us, then Paul Meskell as well for yes. Afterson, which I was like so happy about. I think he's incredible in that film. Um, so yeah, what a day for the Irish! This is like the Italian ninety for Irish film, definitely. And we forget how small we are because sometimes we get we have notions about how big we are, but we're we're, we're tiny really on the international stage, aren't we? So to have fourteen nominations is out of this world. Yeah, and then consider then that one of those nominations is, is, is an Irish is yes. an Irish language film, yeah. you know, and we're and that's a minority language, like that's the minority of the minority, you know. It's like, um, you know. It's I don't know. It's like two percent of people on on the island I think speak yeah. speak Irish on a daily basis or whatever. But obviously a lot lot more people have a kind of a graph for it, and hopefully this film will 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 help people um, to sort of maybe rediscover it or to re-engage with it in, in a different way. But um, yeah, we're just very proud that that we're there. That we're we we've got an Irish language film onto onto the Oscars. Yeah, it's crazy. Were there tears of joy yourself and Cleona, your your wife? I Hoax. think right, I was in. I was kind of in shock. I'm still in shock. Oh, I don't know. Right. I think maybe I'll be like a blubbering mess later on this tonight um, yeah. after a few pints. But um, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, every, yeah, there were definitely people were 
crying and yeah. uh, just a lot of hugging going on. I haven't hugged that many people in, in quite a while. Hugs are good. Um, yeah. yeah, so, yeah, it was just, oh, what a day. Like, and it was just, everyone was here. You know, Screen Ireland were here and TG Carr and uh, all the cast and crew and just just amazing, you know. And even if we hadn't won, we were thinking, you know, this is going to be a celebration of everything that the film has achieved and, mm. you know, it would have been a wonderful day anyway. But, like, this now is just, like, next level. It's incredible. Yeah, well, well listen, congratulations. And we, we're going to be speaking to other people from... Uh, on Colin Keane and the Quiet Girl uh, but for the moment uh, Colin Barade Cahardig uh, Sarish Gormagat Gormagat yes Lawn. Uh, now Paul Meskell nominated for After Sun and we go live to County Kildare uh, to Paul's mother Dervla good afternoon Dervla hi Ray how are you, <laughs> how are you? in my kitchen <laughs> yes <laughs> great to talk to you Dervla well, oh so you too well well we what a magical inter- intro like for all of those people <laughs> yes. like, it was just so fantastic it just was real magic and joy yeah <laughs> lovely yeah. lovely what a joyous day and there was a lot of joy in the yes. Meskel household I would imagine yes 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 so yes. so who was there <laughs> and how were you watching it and, and what happened um, I don't okay I'm really I don't watch them because I find way too stressful so I was folding washing (laughs) literally um and Paul was obviously at work um and obviously Nell is in London and Donica's in New York so he's only just up so yeah he was in work in New York I think isn't it half I don't know what time it is it's five they're five hours yeah they're five hours yeah so he was so it's I just wait for the whatsapp and that's what we did. We had this magic WhatsApp and the shocked faces and crying eyes and yeah, wow. Wow, was, wow. wow. Wow, wow, wow. Yes. But that is how it felt. And, and here's the yes. thing, because, you know, the, the, the people who know, the pundits who follow these things, were yes. saying, and we'll never know, of course, but that it was between your son and Tom Cruise for an Oscar nomination. I know. Yeah, that's that's bizarre. That's totally bizarre. Um, totally. But, you know, for for me, it was the case of, you know, you're watching it, and you're listening and you're, you, you know, not the fact that I didn't know this. I probably always presumed that people knew before it got mm. announced. Nobody knows. No. So it is just this nerve wracking five hours of once you wake up of waiting. It's crazy sick sick emojis going through the family whatsapp yeah my tummy everything yeah (laughs) walking the canal this morning trying to magic just i'm here this is fine this is normal this is a normal day (laughs) this is is what we do we do yeah because now it'll always be oscar nominated paul meskel that's you know know. that's it It for life it is i mean he's 26 yeah that like it's it's, uh, you know and when you look at the people he's with and you know, you know, people. We kind of jokingly say we're a country of st- storytellers and mm. and things like that. And we actually, when you see what we've produced, it is quite quite amazing. And you know, the films that are there are just incredible. And Paul is just one of those very lucky boys yeah. to be in that mix. Paul Meskell's mother, Dervla, talking to Ray Darcy this afternoon after an Oscars tastic day for Irish film people. Ray was also speaking to Turish Gorfoin, Sinead Niulachon, and the director of Ancolin Kuhn, Colum Barred. Finally, on this episode of Playback Daily, two stars of screen made their debuts on the Ryan Tuberty show this morning siblings Aidan, 13, and Molly, 11, McCann, 
have appeared in such modern classics as Bad Sisters and Herself. And they had some exciting news to share with Ryan. I stayed up um, till one in the morning to watch it with my friends, Adam and Ruben. Um, and it was great. I knew what happened, but I, it was cool, though, because you get to see kind of how it was edited and what they kind of use with the footage you give them, like talking before um, the act actually comes on. So what, what, were, you, what, were, you you watch, of, what were you watching? Sorry, I, I lost you there. What, what were you watching and why? Oh, yeah. So I, sorry, I was watching <laughs> America.Town All-Stars because I was on it last night. Congratulations. Um. So I was watching it with my friends and it's cool because you kind of like forget what happens because it wasn't that long ago, but just when you're on stage, everything becomes a blur. You you had been a, a young magician. Uh, you'd appeared on the Ellen Show. Remember that happening at the time? Britain's Got Talent. Uh, Ireland's Got Talent. So your, 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 your star just keeps ascending. And now America's Got Talent All-Stars at the age of? 13. What was it like being there and doing that? Yeah, uh, it was great. So I was over in LA. It's so nice in LA. Um, and oh, they do the best chocolate milks over there. <laughs> so um, I was, yeah, it was great. Uh, go to the studio and practice a lot um, on the stage. The stage is really big. It's great. And um, yeah, it, it was. Just, it's so. It's such a blur because the filming. Um, it was so fun and it. Trying to remember some of the key moments. It's no, really that's fun okay. backstage it, it, as well. It, 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 it just I sometimes think when you go, when you're on a stage that big, it, the nerves can get the better of you. But but you sound like somebody who's pretty good to go, not too concerned about the nerves. <laughs> yeah, I handle them pretty well. Good um, man. <laughs> it's nice to talk to the acts before you go on as well to like meet everyone. Everyone's really nice. Really nice. Well, and that's important to have nice people around you, as you know. Your sister's on the line as well, Molly McCann. Good morning, Molly. Hi. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for asking. What age are you at the moment? I'm 11 at the moment. And how would you describe uh, your working life? Are you busy? Are you? Is it quiet? Um, what well, yeah, it's a new year, so there's always great opportunities going ahead. But um, this time last year, I filmed a movie in Colombia where I played John Cena's daughter, which is coming out this summer. Congratulations. And I also did, um, I filmed another movie in Ackle Island, which is also coming out this summer, where I was Breach Brennan's granddaughter and James Cosmo's granddaughter. Amazing. Is everyone filming on Ackle Island at the moment? It seems to be the place to be. <laughs> Um, yeah. I saw you in one of my favourite films from a couple of years ago, which is Herself. Oh, yeah, I got IFTA nominated for that you one. You did get IFTA nominated. You are a veteran <laughs> actress or actor now. Um, and you were with, uh, that's, of course, Claire Dunn's marvellous film that you were starring as her daughter in that. Did you enjoy yeah. that experience? I mean, I know it was, it was Claire a Claire heavy... Dunn was really nice on set and she just made everyone really happy. And after the movie just kind of came out, me and who played my sister in it, we all went to the movies to watch, I think it was Frozen 2, and we had a really good girls' day out. Who was at it? You? Me, Claire Dunn, and who played my sister, her name was Ruby Rose. The three of you? Yeah. Did Claire pony up for... Popcorn and Coke and all the other good stuff. <laughs> yeah. Okay, she's okay then. Now let's talk about some of the other things that you've been in. What to, you can feel, feel free, Molly, to to be a little bit boastful today. I wouldn't say boastful. I would just simply say <laughs> that you're just explaining your life to me. What else have you been in? Because you've got quite a track record now. 
Um, well, I, my very first movie I actually ever did was a Western movie that I filmed in Luxembourg. Wow. And that was called Never Grow Old, and I had loads of fun doing that. With John I played Emil Hirsch's daughter. Yes. Okay, and what else? And I also did um, a movie called Rosie, where I, my family lived in a car I with Sarah Green and Mo Dumfries. Yeah, you're excellent in that too, yes. And... Me and my brother, actually, we both went to Malta to film a series called The Holiday. Yes. And, um... That'll do, that'll do for now. I did no, no, here that, and there and uh, adverts and stuff. Of course. No, that's okay. You're, you're, you're a busy woman. I mean, there's no busy girl, I should say, at this stage. And you have a new film coming along as well? Yeah, I do. That's um, that's the Colombian one I was telling you that's about. That's the one, okay. I John Cena's daughter in that one. It's called Freelance and it's coming out this summer. This summer. And is Christian Slater in that also? Pardon? Is the actor Christian Slater in that as well? I'm not sure. Um, I, 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 thought, I thought I read that somewhere. Don't mind. I want to go back to your brother for just two seconds because, uh, Aidan, you, uh, you're also acting. You, we saw you in Bad Sisters, which has been a phenomenon. Yeah, um, I filmed that. Um, mid-2021 and kind of finished early last year um, in, like, February. Uh, that was that was definitely one of my favourite things to film. It was such a fun experience for a few months. Um, I was travelling to London and back and Belfast and back, um, and it was just great. The cast are super nice. Um, it was definitely one of the bigger productions I've been on. Uh, tell me about Kevin Costner. Kevin Costner is great. Um uh, I when we first got to um, Utah, which is where we were filming, Horizon, um, yes. we were told that <laughs> we were going to go to his house. So we were there for like four hours, and I was showing him some magic tricks and stuff. He's really nice. So you were you you got to Kevin Costner's house, and he says, "Welcome." And you say, "Well, <laughs> you think you think I'm the guest here? Let me show you some tricks." Bah, 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 bah. <laughs> yeah, because we got there, and uh, he he was giving me some really good help as well, and I. Um, got to meet some of the other cast there as well and I'm going back over in a few months to film some more with him so that'll be great That's Aidan McCann talking about his showbiz lifestyle with his sister Molly they're 13 and 11 by the way on this morning's Ryan Turberty show And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Shirodon don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio player. And I'll be along with another episode of Playback Daily at the same time tomorrow. Until then, thank you for listening and good luck. <laughs>